0: Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We have a great show for you today. We are hard-charging towards the sunshine double, and our guest is the creator of its first leg, Indian Wells. He grew up in San Juan, Puerto Rico in the 50s, under the tutelage of the fabled teacher, Welby Van Horn and rose to tennis prominence in the United States as a junior winning the Orange Bowl and Kalamazoo. He attended UCLA and forged a lifelong friendship with Arthur Ashe. He trained with Pancho Segura at the Beverly Hills Tennis Club and rose to become the number 1 player in the nation in 1967. He posted wins over Rod Laver, Roy Emerson, Stan Smith, Manolo Santana, and Adriano Panatta to name a few. A true legend of the game, Charlie Pasarell, is going to discuss what he thinks of the new generation, who he considers the greatest money player of his generation. He's going to talk about the controversial CEO machinations at the top of the ATP. He's going to tell us how he created what is now the fifth biggest tournament in the world. We sat down with Charlito last July during the International Tennis Hall of Fame induction weekend. This episode is brought to you by Sergio Tacchini, the official apparel sponsor of Under Review. We're in the children's playroom at the Viking Hotel in Newport. We just tried to dive into a, a quiet room. This is the, the home base for
1: the Hall of Fame induction weekend. Would that be fair to say? That is correct, yes. That, that's uh, also uh, for the tournament as well. And, the, and this is the tournament hotel. And the hotel. players are here, all the people that will be participating in the Hall of Fame induction as well as the, the inductees. And there's a lot so. of
0: action in that lobby. Oh, yes. You see everybody in tennis.
1: That is correct.
0: A uh, gentleman you are hearing is none other than a Hall of Famer, tennis illuminary in my opinion, Charlie Passerell. Thank you for joining us.
1: My pleasure. It's uh, fun to, to do this. Uh,
0: first of all, Charlie's wearing an Apple watch on his right wrist and a gold Rolex on his left. What's the significance of that uh, gold watch on your left wrist? I, is that the Davis Cup winner?
1: No. No. I, I, there's a story behind that. I know. Yeah, way back then, uh, Arthur, Arthur Ashe wanted to have a gold Rolex uh, presidential watch. And... Uh, and so Manolo Santana from Spain said, I can get you one at a 40% discount in Spain. Oh, great, why don't you get me one and everything. So now we're actually on that, uh, that trip for the Davis Cup in 68. We go to Hong Kong and Arthur couldn't wait. You know, he didn't know whether Manolo was gonna do this for him. And so Arthur went in Hong Kong and he bought a watch, he bought a gold Rolex watch. Now we show up to the National Indoor tournaments in Salisbury, Maryland and Manolo is there. And he says, oh, Arthur, I got your watch. Arthur is almost fainted, you know, because he already had one. And I'm happy to be there. So it immediately I stepped in, I said, you know, Arthur already got one, Manolo, but I'll buy it from you. So I got it at a 40% discount. 1967, I bought this watch.
0: My man, that is a great watch story. What'd you Six, pay for that watch?
1: $640. Oh, come on. That's absolutely true. It's, I don't know what it's worth now. but That's a $640 Rolex yeah, from 1967. Which, which was a lot of money then. <laughs>
0: <So>. <laughs> we do a five-set format per usual. Our first set is the off-the-court report. Right, let's just get right into this. Sure. Um, everyone's got a lot going on. <laughs> Hall of Fame induction
1: weekend. What are your obligations now? What are you doing now? Well, regarding... Uh, tennis uh, I am involved with a number of of projects Uh, one of them is being here for the Hall of Fame Uh, I'm the uh, vice chairman of the uh, executive board of the Hall of Fame and uh, we're in the process of doing a capital raising campaign and a number of things here yes and does Todd Martin
0: report to you or you report to
1: him uh, Todd Martin we call him the boss so (laughs) Todd Martin is doing a phenomenal job and so I'm here to assist him and uh, in whatever uh, programs he's come up with. Interestingly enough, uh, a lot of people just do not know that there is a tennis Hall of Fame, uh, let alone where it is. And so we're trying to really promote that Hall of Fame uh, on an international basis, and and we're we're having some quite good success by doing all kinds of activities around the world.
0: You're trying to market the Hall of Fame in a more significant and grand way.
1: That is correct, and it's, uh, you know, as I said, it's just basically to promote it, because uh, to really let people that there is a Hall of Fame and that that is, you know, the ultimate uh, goal of any person involved in the sport of tennis, uh, player or some contributors, uh, you know, to, to basically be recognized uh, by the Hall of Fame. It is the ultimate award.
0: For our listeners who have not been here, the Tennis Hall of Fame at the Newport Casino, you know, it's called the casino, but it's really, uh, it's just a magnificent place.
1: Well, it's a historical place that uh, the Van Allen family, in particular, Jimmy Van Allen, basically acquired many, many years ago, and he instituted uh, the Hall of Fame, amongst other of his great contributions to the, to the sport of tennis, the tiebreaker. He's the one responsible James for Van
0: Allen, uh, the name of the trophy that you get if you win Newport is the Van Allen Cup. And J- Jimmy Van Allen, Jimmy? Well, I knew him as Jimmy,
1: you but his Jimmy. proper name would be James. That's correct. James but, uh, Van
0: Allen created the tiebreaker.
1: That is correct. Uh, he, he basically, uh, way back then, and this is in the... Doc- oh, you know this guy? You look a lot better. You must be older than you look, man, because... Well, I don't know. Uh, you know, I <laughs> I, I, I was uh, I turned 50 25 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Charlie Passerall,
0: you know James Van
1: Allen. I did. we played in the tournament when he was uh, running the event here, and yeah. we used to stay in the up in the attic of what is now the Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, there will be about 20 cots out there when all the players would sleep yeah. in one room. But, but it, was, it was a wonderful time. And, uh, yeah, uh, Mr. Van Allen or Jimmy uh, really deserves a lot of credit for what he did.
0: Now, Charlie, um, what else do you do throughout the year?
1: Well, besides uh, the Hall of Fame, uh, I am involved with the, um, uh, I'm part of the committee that is putting together the National Junior Girls uh, Tennis Championships in San Diego. Uh, It's called the Billie Jean uh, National Junior Tennis Championship. Billie Jean uh, is there, and I'm working with Lorne Kuehl and uh, um, Bill Kellogg from the La Jolla Beach and Tennis Club, uh, Jack McGraw, and Una Una Davis, uh, and, and really trying to put uh, really to upgrade. It's the Kalamazoo of the girls. And that you're, you're in charge of the. We're, we're it's a five member committee. Uh, we raise all the money for it. Uh, we are, by the way, in, interestingly enough, we, uh, as of uh, two years ago, we were the first junior tennis tournament that was uh, put on television through the tennis channel. Ever televised. They and, should be shown all those big tournaments. And, and we are. And we're promoting junior tennis, uh, f- uh, in particular for the girls, uh, in a big way. And we're delighted to have Billie Jean to have lend us uh, her name to the event, uh, because she's obviously one of the great heroes of the sport of tennis. Let's
0: get right into
1: our second set. We call this the
0: On the Court Report. First of all, when you look at tennis now, I mean, I know you're very
1: tight to the sport. But when you look at it, is it recognizable to you? Oh, it's 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 gone through tremendous uh, changes and uh, developed. Uh, I think the sport uh, to the better. Uh, you know, uh, the the first of all, the equipment has had a great, significant change on on how the game is played uh, through the rackets, the strings, and the balls. Does that does it bother you
0: that that seems to have homogenized some of the stroke production and some of the
1: not, not really. No. Uh, you know, uh, when I was playing, uh, s- certainly when you played on, on grass courts and on fast courts, there was great criticism about there are no rallies. Serve and volley, boom. One, two everybody, shots everybody, everybody
0: bitched about that.
1: Everybody complained. You know, tennis is boring because it's serve and volley. Now, you go out and watch these matches and the rallies are phenomenal, even on a grass court. And so... Um, I think it's it's for the better, as I, I mentioned. And and these guys, these athletes today, they're bigger. They're great athletes. They're, it's just, it's progressed uh, in every possible way. Uh, the guys are really, really outstanding tennis players, outstanding athletes.
0: Do you interact with any of these guys? Do you ever, like, you know, talk to Roger Federer on a call? Or do you know, do you know these I, guys? I, since...
1: I know them very well. Yeah. And uh, I usually see them during uh, the tournament at Indian Wells. Yeah. And, uh, you know... Um, Which obviously I'm. I'm still. It was. It's my baby. I don't no no longer own it, or or have any management obligations there. But uh, I certainly am there, and I see guys like Roger and Rafa and Novak, and you know. So uh, yes, I do know them, and I don't. I don't try to to bother them, you know. And uh, there are many other players as well that uh, of course. I just
0: was curious if you interact with them and and. You know, I was curious what your relationship was. Our show's a bit of an insider's show, so i you know, I...
1: When <laughs> I can't give you any information on those guys. No. no I don't know. You don't play that. golf with them over at <laughs> I, Larry's? I have, you I have in the past, uh, yeah, but uh, but really, um, and whatever I know that about them, I probably wouldn't tell you about it. <laughs> no, just kidding. No, I know, no, I know. Now, is the camaraderie around, amongst the,
0: this sort of new generation of players... Um, and, and the generations, is there a significant camaraderie that you sort of participate in?
1: Well, first of all, it's a lot different than, than our days. Uh, in our days, we didn't have the luxury of having coaches and trainers and people, an entourage of people traveling uh, with us that basically today, the players have that. And uh, some more than others. And, uh, and when you have that then basically they isolate themselves um, you know quite a bit however uh, there are some personal relationships for example Roger and Rafa I think have a very very strong personal relationship with each other you know when Rafa opened his academy uh, who was there Roger you know for the opening of the academy and so so uh, and I want to say that every one of those guys every one of these guys that are playing tennis with a Couple of exceptions, you know, but um, I'm talking the top players, you know, uh, from Rafa to Roger to Novak to Eve, Andy to all those guys. They are great ambassadors to the sport. I mean, it's it's we're very blessed that you know this generation of players have really established a a way of conduct, you know, and everything that is really really meritorious. I, I to... think that as a
0: sort of residual of Roger, um, it feels to me that they handle themselves in a very dignified well, manner.
1: Uh, yeah, Roger is, you can say he's kind of the leader of the pack, but uh, that's not to say that Rafa wasn't that way. I mean, he's one of the most humble guys. Novak, on the, other, on the other hand, always. And he could be the best player in the world today, but he still acknowledges Roger and acknowledges Rafa, you know, and, and they have a great deal. Not only them, they acknowledge even the, pa- the players of the past, i.e. Rod Laver. I mean the labor Cup, I mean that was Rogers idea, and it's just wonderful to see that these guys have a great sense of the history, um, you know what came before them, what set up this wonderful sport around the world and uh, and they're appreciative of that and and uh, I think that's that's uh, that's really wonderful that these guys are that way. Well,
0: I'm going to ask you um, what are your impressions and what can you tell us about the you know, really what's been this controversial moment with the firing or the, 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 the choosing to not renew the CEO of the ATP, Chris Kermode's contract. Do you have any interesting perspective that you'd like to share?
1: Well, I do. Uh, as you know, I'm probably, I uh, still am the longest serving uh, ATP board member. Uh, you know, I served over 26 years on the board. And so, so obviously, it's, it's a, the ATP was something that I was one of the founders of and, uh, and, and this system of partnership between tournaments and players uh, I think it's an unusual structure for professional sports, but it's not perfect and it's got its flaws, but it certainly has worked and if you look at where we began and where the sport is today, Every which way, from prize money, from uh, television coverage, from attendance, from all this perspective, it's been an enormous growth. So it's worked, in my opinion, it's worked. However, it's always, tennis is always flawed with uh, tennis politics. You know, And it's uh, the way it was then, and it's the way it is today. Uh, it's about trying to, people protect their turf, the Europe wants to protect their turf, the Americas wants to protect their turf. Uh, the international group wants to protect their turf. The players want to protect their turf. The top players want to protect their turf. The lower players want, and so somehow all these different constituencies, you know, that have different interests, uh, you know, they, you know, have to get together and compromise. And compromise is the key word. And um, and somehow we've been able to compromise. I think Chris has done a very good job. You know, it it is uh, people's. I think the ATP CEO is probably the toughest job there is in tennis. The reason is, you do something to favor the players, the tournaments aren't happy. You do something to favor the top tournaments, the lower tournaments are not happy. You do something to favor the top players, the lower players are happy, and vice versa. So it's really, it's really a very difficult job, and, and the key is to be able to find compromises and, uh, and move forward.
0: Now, is it true that Djokovic was basically trying to slot Gimelstab into that job?
1: Well, I, I think so, uh, that's, that's what I've heard. Uh, I, I didn't have the inside track on it, but I think it's a pretty well-known fact that uh, Novak, who is the uh, president of the Players Association, which I think is wonderful, that really the number one player in the world takes an active role in what's happening in the sport. I may not agree with everything he says, but uh, at the same time, uh, you know, uh, it, it's true. I think Justin was a very capable uh, uh, and certainly represented the players in a, in a big way. But I think he had his flaws about how he went about it, and uh, it's really unfortunate that he's gotten himself into this mess. Um, but um, uh, I don't know if Justin would have would have. I don't know if the uh, the ATP and the sport of tennis would have accepted Justin as the CEO. I think he would have a very difficult time being taking that position.
0: Yeah, and what? But what even like how? How does that even happen? That. That Novak could think that Justin could do that job. I mean, these guys are significant business men. Justin played pro tennis and and has is a broadcaster.
1: Yeah, I mean, and you know, but he's not a he's a smart guy. I mean, uh, and uh, but he and could just go in and be a CEO. I think I think in my opinion, no, okay. I don't think he was qualified. Uh, yeah, you know, and uh, and I think it's because he. He, again, the key to a CEO, the key to a CEO is compromise, finding compromise, how to get all this different uh, and doing it. I want to say that the fundamental success of the sport of tennis uh, and for the ATP is a a good partnership between the tournaments and the players. If the tournaments succeed, the players are going to succeed. 100%. You know, and, and you have to... You have to be behind. It It can't be one-sided. It can't and be so, one-sided, man. And so, so I, I oftentimes went against tournaments, uh, even though I was representing tournaments, because I felt that in some cases, you know, there wasn't a, a proper distribution of the success, okay? And it's not just money, you know, it's, it's about how we promote it and how we do things. Let's move into our
0: third set. This is the part of our show where we talk about your career. Now, listen, I know that you're from Puerto Rico. I know that um, you had a very significant junior career. Um, but I think that maybe we should just ask you, where does your story begin? Did you begin with Welby Van Horn? Is that your start? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, uh, For our listeners, Welby Van Horn, we have spoke about him with Gigi Fernandez, actually. that He didn't take her, but... Welby Van Horn is, a, is sort of this famous tennis instructor from Puerto, that taught at Puerto, in Puerto Rico.
1: Well, well tell the story. Quick, quick, quick background on Welby. Welby was an outstanding tennis player of his own. 1939, as a 19-year-old, he got to the finals of Forest stilts, which is now the U.S. Open, and he lost to Bobby Briggs there in, in the finals. But, uh, and then the war came, and Welby suffered from asthma, and, uh, he taught tennis and worked at an airplane factory during the war. During the war, and uh, so and then when the war was over, he joined the pro tour, played uh, for a couple of years in the Kramer tour, so to speak, and and you know had some some good success. But what what makes Welby an outstanding, there has never been a better teacher. And there's a difference between a teacher and a coach. A teacher is somebody that can go out and take. A, a, a young person or even an older person and teach him good fundamentals uh, of the game, how to play the game, uh, strokes, balance, uh, grips, and, and basically uh, and develop that, give, give that player the good fundamentals that he can maximize his potential. A coach is somebody that takes already a good player and tries to maximize his potential by c- developing better strategies, conditioning, a number of things. Uh, Welby was both. But uh, but uh, as a teacher, no one could ever match uh, maybe as good as Welby, but no better. And and uh, and he and I was very fortunate that he gave me good fundamentals.
0: If you ever see a player that was taught by Welby Van Horn, that's the most classic strokes. It's almost like a, a perfect caricature of what
1: the tennis would look like. Well, you know, the, what Welby stressed, and he really, really stressed, the key word for him was balance. If you had good footwork and you could get into position to stroke, strike the ball, and you're in good balance, you have a very good chance of making a good shot. If you don't do that, uh, then, then I think if you don't get into good balance, you know, there's a good chance you're gonna miss the shot. And that's, it's as simple as that. You know, uh, most athletic endeavors, movement, it's about movement and balance. Yeah. You the know, the if you're out of balance, balance you're gonna have a difficult time executing whatever it is that you do. Uh, but in tennis, uh, that is key, it's a key thing. And, and he stressed a lot of the movement and balance. And, uh, and, and that's, that's what made him, I think, an outstanding day. He had a very, he always said, he says, I wanna take a, a, a difficult game and make it simple. And, uh, but that learning process, the first lesson I, ten- I had with Welby when I was a seven-year-old boy, First lesson I had, I didn't even have a tennis racket on my hand. He just taught me how to, how to move and how to turn and how to approach the ball with my hands in my hips. And he said, if I can get that right, then I, he'll put a racket in my hand and uh, teach me then the grip and the stroke, you know, but, but that's basically how well we taught tennis. That's interesting. Um, you were born in Puerto Rico, is that right? I certainly was. And, and, and
0: let me ask you, I mean, in, in Puerto Rico, you know, there's baseball and there's boxing. Um, how do you become a tennis player well, coming it, out of Puerto Rico? T- t- t-
1: uh, tennis was not a major sport, but uh, we were very fortunate that uh, Welby came to Puerto Rico in the early 50s. And, uh, and so that my, my, both my mother and father uh, played tennis, per- particularly my father. My father won the Island Championships. So you came from times. a
0: tennis family? We used
1: to hang around the tennis club all the time. Okay. And so when Welby came, uh, you know, they took me to Welby to have my, my uh, first lessons. And, uh, and so I, I, that was very for, I was very fortunate. Interestingly, uh, I remember then Welby taught not just me but a number of other juniors, young players of my, but when we were 13 years old uh, in the US, and we only, our tennis club only had four courts, in the US we had four kids ranking the top 10. Puerto Rico in the 13 and under division back then. And 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 he was the El Conquistador
0: where he taught? No, no,
1: no the no. the Caribe Hilton Hotel. Caribe Hilton. Yes. Um, and that's where you guys all came up. That's where we all grew up. And, and you won the Orange Bowl? I won the Orange Bowl. I won every division, singles and doubles, except the 18 singles. And I, that always bothered me that I couldn't win the... Who beat you in the 18s? I, I lost to, believe it or not, I lost to an Australian uh, who who has been the president of the Australian Tennis Federation. And uh, I could beat Tony Roach, but I couldn't beat him. Who? So, I'm trying to name escapes Can't remember now. his name, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but. Uh, uh, but it, it's so yeah you, there was one guy that you could get It was one guy that gave me fits you know I you lost to time. him in, I, I lost to him in the semifinals. And, uh, was he a big, Did he end up being a big-time player? Yeah, he, he, not, not to the level of a... You know, I grew up with the Roaches and Newcombs and those guys, and not, not as good as them, but, you know, he, he was a good player. we got to think so. of it. Well, we'll
0: have to look we'll it think up. Of it. Maybe yeah. we'll look it up.
1: Yeah. Now, so what's the story? You guys would fly over from Puerto Rico,
0: play tennis throughout the summer, play the juniors, or just play the just mostly
1: Florida? Well, it, my first trip uh, to the States was when I was 11 years old to play the Orange Bowl. And what was that experience like? Incredible? Hey, oh, you know, first time in an airplane. I mean, you know, it was... Really? You know, and, and what about what racket did you play with back then? Uh, I was playing with the uh, Jack Kramer racket. You know, Wilson L- Jack L- Kramer. Wilson Jack Kramer racket. Was that uh, your racket all the way through? That yeah, was all, my racket all the way through up until then. I signed a contract with uh, Head. And, and uh, along with Arthur, we developed the Head. Uh, tennis division. Uh, he he developed a composite head and I developed the What well, was the tennis master? Uh, the 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 headmaster racket with the blue throat, you know, I developed that.
0: So well, That's interesting. Well, we we going to go back to your relation with Arthur Ashe in a minute. Um, but so you were a top junior and did you just get recruited by UCLA? Is that how that happened? Yeah,
1: I, as a 17 year old, I, um, you know, I was always a top junior and as a 17 year old, I won the national junior championships uh, U.S and so was and, was, and
0: was that kalamazoo kalamazoo
1: you yeah. won it in kalamazoo kalamazoo on red clay
0: man it's interesting you know um the more interviews we do the more you hear a lot of the same trajectories so after you
1: won kalamazoo yeah i was i was um welby van horn who originally was from southern california okay he always said southern california is in those days is the hub of tennis and i still think it's the hub of tennis and so Certainly uh, a hotbed. Yeah, and uh, that's where you know that's where you need to go to school, and so uh, I had to choose between UCLA and USC. And uh, Arthur at the same time was going to school, and so the two of us were recruited uh, by both schools, and uh, we chose to we chose UCLA. Actually, both. Of you So you and Arthur Ashe were good actually, friends. Actually, J.D. Morgan, who was then the tennis coach and the associate business manager, eventually became. Uh, the athletic director at UCLA. He was a legendary person at UCLA. He did such an unbelievable recruiting. He made the decision for us. He did. He told you. As a 17-year-old, he says, welcome, Bruins. And so to both Arthur and I, and we just couldn't say no to him. Now, um, when did you meet Arthur Ashe? Oh, I first played against Arthur when I was 12 at the Orange Bowl. And uh, I remember I played him in the quarterfinals, and I beat him 6-2, 2-6, 6-2. So I still remember that match. <laughs> and you guys were just fast friends? We, well, we, we, that's the first time I met him. You know, we as, over the years, we became friends, but we really didn't become great friends, best friends, uh, on to, when uh, only happened when we went to UCLA. We knew each other. Right, right, right. But uh, you know, at UCLA, that's when we really became best so friends. So what years were you in UCLA? uh 62 to 67 so was john wooden the, was john wooden was there um, you know I mean, what
0: 62 to 67 you took 5 years well because i sat out one year you redshirted uh, yeah that's right so i mean what was that being on that campus must have been like must oh, been incredible
1: incredible it was probably the best time of my life being in that you know on that campus with surrounded by so many Uh, legends and great people. Now, would you guys go to the basketball
0: game?
1: We, you know, Arthur and I, uh, through JD Morgan, who was then the athletic director, would arrange for us to have, even in the private practices of UCLA basketball team, and keep in mind that 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 year was the 30 and 0 season for UCLA. Which Uh, one, 62? 62, yeah, 62. And that was when, um, you know, they had, uh, Gail Goodrich, Walt Hazard, uh, uh, Freddie Lynn, uh, Fred Slaughter, and uh, Keith Erickson. That was the starting lineup, and uh, and we used to be able to go and see the private practices. You know, and not not too many people were allowed to go, but JD would arrange it. And 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 Charlie was the were
0: the tennis courts right next to Paulie?
1: Were they always right next? It, they were right. The tennis courts we used were right next to our dormitory, Got it. Uh, which was Sprawl Hall, where we were living. Yeah, you know.
0: and um. Incredible experience! Oh,
1: a- a- amazing experience! You know, and, and and did you get better in college? Did you improve as a I, tennis player? I, absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, JD was uh, was a great motivator. Uh, he he basically winning for JD was the greatest thrill of the of them all. He made you feel like a million bucks. Losing when with JD you didn't want to see him. <laughs> so, and what was college tennis like back
0: then? Like we see it now and. It's very different. Uh, there, there's boisterous crowds. There's a lot of demonstrative behavior on the courts. Has that always been the way college tennis was, or did college tennis sort of walk
1: a little bit of a straighter line uh, then? Yeah, I, I I think tennis in general has become a more demonstrative sport, not just in college, even in the pros. Yeah. I mean, you know, you see all the exuberance you see today on the court, you know, with, with the athletes, you know, um, Nothing wrong with that, by the way, but you know, if you look, if you look in the past, when Rod Labor would win Wimbledon, he wasn't, you know, jumping up and down and running into the stands. And, you know, different. Uh, it was different. You know, that's just the way the way it was. Uh, so I think I think the sport has, because of the television and the coverage it receives today, it's become you know a, a bigger. You know, the, these these champions have become personalities and they become celebrities. And uh, more than we it's were different. back then, it's different. It, and I think that transcends to college. And I, I want to say that team competition is one of the greatest things. You know, in our days, the besides college tennis, uh, you had the Davis Cup. The Davis Cup was such a, to make the Davis Cup team and to play Davis it's Cup. The biggest thing. It was the biggest thing. The biggest it was, thing. It was bigger than Wimbledon. Okay? Biggest thing. Yeah, and uh, and so so that that I think. It's kind of one of the things that, you know, I think needs to, they're trying to resuscitate, you know, by changing the format a little bit and everything. But we can talk about that in a moment. And, uh, but, but hold on a second. I want to go back to you and Ash. Did, I mean, did you guys have, did you guys, like, kill everybody? Were you, were you guys the best? N- not at all. No. Not at all. Our, our foes was uh, USC. And let me, let, me th- let me give you the lineup for USC when we were there. You we had Rafael Osuna. Rafael Asuna he, and he's a from Mexico he and Dennis Ralston had just won Wimbledon doubles. Huh. They had Dennis Ralston. Okay. They had uh, Bill Bond who was a top 10 ranked player in, Bill in Bond. A, Bond. Bond, B O N D. Yeah, Bill okay. Bond. That's yeah.
0: a, that's a very well-known name in in he, American he, he, tennis. Yeah, in
1: Southern California yeah. he was a top junior and uh, yeah. you know and uh, we they had um, uh, Uh, Ramsey Earnhardt, Ramsey Earnhardt was ranked 11th in the United States, and he and Marty Reason were the number two ranked team in the United States in doubles, and we had Tom Edlifson, who also became a very top player, and the the sixth player was a guy guy named Chuck Rumba, who was a top junior. So you guys had heavy battles. uh, Unbelievable battles, but uh, they were clear and above maybe the best college team that's ever been put together. Every one of those players, the the guy that was playing number five, Ramsey Earnhardt, number five for them, was ranked eleventh in the United States in singles and number two in doubles. He was playing number in the fifth spot at the uh, for the team. Did you guys have bad blood between you? Not at all. No, man. we're all good friends. All know. good friends on the court. Yes, on the court where they were our bitter enemies. Bitter. Yeah, but off the court, you know, we were and we have remained great friends with, with every one of them. So, so you. Uh
0: like like I think a lot of players in that LA UCLA group you started practicing at at Beverly Hills Tennis Club.
1: We we used to have practice sessions there and besides the practice sessions that we had at UCLA and also the LA Tennis Club. And we used to we had the great benefit of being able to practice against Pancho Gonzalez, Pancho Segura, Alex Olmedo, who were all tremendous professional players. And so we had great practice sessions with all of those um legends it so it funny. sounds to me like you were really improving playing in the la you were in the la
0: scene that's correct so did you graduate from ucla yes and you and then you started playing as an amateur like i can't understand well
1: the, your career because I'll, let, I'll give you a quick summary But of let me
0: explain my okay. my confusion and you know i feel like i'm a pretty knowledgeable person but even when I've spoken to Martin Mulligan there was the Kramer tour and then there was the Federation Well you had
1: the ITF <laughs> and then you had the the pro tour which was the uh, survivor of the Kramer tour and then you had the WCT that came into being with Lamar Hunt and the uh, Hinesome Lamar Hunt that, but, so so where did you go you finished college where would you go I was in college through 67 and uh, in 1967 based on my record i got to be ranked number 1 in the united states in men's tennis Lo and behold and that's
0: from what tournaments
1: oh I, gosh i mean uh, i won the national indoors twice i mean it's a, a you would n- just number. play tournaments i i won about i think in 66 67 uh, i won about uh, i won about 7 tournaments so say no, I won, none of the majors but but i won a lot so of like
0: say in the middle of march you would just go play tournaments and then go back I to w- school and th- th-
1: that's correct okay okay and uh, so i i from school you know, we're in the middle of the Vietnam War. I got drafted into the U.S. Army, so I served two years in the U.S. Army. Arthur, who had graduated, had taken ROTC. He was also in the U.S. Army. So you guys are veterans. So, so did yeah. you see? Did you go over there? I, I did go to Vietnam, not to fight. Okay, not to. I was not in a fighting. But we did go to Vietnam. Um, it was something that they sent us there. Uh, to do some goodwill with the troops. Many athletes were, were doing that at the time, but uh, but uh, we did see what was going on. You spoke uh, to the troops? Spoke to the troops, spoke to the generals. Uh, General Abrams uh, was then the commander in chief. Yeah. We spent a lot of time with you him. went over there? I was there. I was saying you know, we went to, we landed in Saigon, from there we were taking helicopters right into Da Nang, Hamran oh, Bay, no, Bin. Uh-huh. Uh, a number of things, went to a lot of the hospitals, uh, did some tennis exhibitions, you know, and. Uh, oh really? Yeah, so um, it was a, 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 it's a different, scary, just scary in a different time. Yeah, it, was, it was like a Fellini movie, you know, it was surreal, you know, we would go to these functions at night, cocktail parties or something, and. All these colonels and lieutenant colonels and generals who come in and you know, and uh, they come in their fatigues with their weapons and you know the next day they go off to battle. That's we a, may not We may not see them the next day, you know, and uh, we spent uh, six days over there. So it was um, it was an amazing uh, experience. I'm glad I did it, you know. So, and how did it impact your tennis? You guys didn't.
0: You guys you guys were able to continue well, to play. we, or we you
1: know? yeah. Well, we. Obviously, I could only play a limited uh, amount okay. of tennis, you know, um, because I was serving. So So it did, no excuse, but, you know, it did uh, my prime, you know, which is 67, 68, 69. I mean, you know, I was, I was not free to go out and, and play all the majors and, and do all of that. So uh, so it was, uh, it, it, you know, but it was okay. It was something we had to do and we did it. I'm glad we did it. But, so, but that, so, so, that, so you finished your service. Then what happened to you? Then, uh, finished the service, and, and then, remember, 1968 was the transition period between, that's when Open Tennis finally came about, okay? Right. And so, when I got out of the Army, which was early 69, uh, then, all of a sudden, um, you know, I, the, the U.S. was still not accepting professional tennis players on the Davis Cup team, so they, they contract professionals. And so we had, to, we had to remain as amateurs for a period of time so that we could play Davis Cup. Once again, Davis biggest Cup was the Biggest thing. Biggest thing. And so, and in 68, and, and end of 68, we did win the Davis Cup. And so, so that was good. So 69 was a, a, a difficult and So you won the Davis Cup. That is correct. In Who'd you beat? We beat Australia in the final. That was, you know, they still how'd had you, a challenge round. How'd you do? Uh, I actually didn't play in the finals. You know, I would, you know, Arthur and Claude Gravener and Smith and Lutz played the doubles. Um, Bob but, Lutz but I, and Stan Smith. Yeah, but uh, we I, I played in in previous matches uh, against Spain. You know, and uh, we beat Spain in in Cleveland, Ohio. And so Donald Dell was the captain. And uh,
0: man, you and, hear all these names. I mean, these names are like. You know Donald Dell. We hear his name all the time. Well, I mean. he's a
1: hollow, He's in the, in the Hall of Fame as well, as a, for his con, major contributions to the sport. I
0: and mean, he's a major
1: wheeler dealer still. He still is, yes. And they say uh, like
0: Donald Deal.
1: <laughs> Donald, you know, we we have been great friends for so so long. Still, still are I talk to him almost weekly. So. What was
0: your greatest tournament you ever you ever played? I know you quartered. The, Open, uh, the US Open and you quartered uh, Wimbledon, is that right?
1: Yeah, and the French and the Australian, you know, so I got to the quarters of every one of them. So. so you're in the
0: final eight of every one of them?
1: That is correct, yeah, so. What, do you have a special
0: tournament that you played your best tennis, that you like just were unstoppable in your life, like do you remember?
1: Uh, you know, every time I walked on the court, I felt I should win the match. You know, I took, that was my attitude. Time. Every time you walk on the court? Every time, it didn't matter where it was, what tournament it was, a big tournament or a lesser tournament, I tried, you know, if I didn't feel that, I didn't win, okay? If I felt that, I, I had a lot of big wins. So you just yeah. thought you were the baddest yeah. dude around. I, you have to, you have to. Every time you walk on the court, you've got to say, I'm, I'm going to come out of here the winner. That's really, I, that was ingrained in me. Did yeah. you ever beat Rod Laver? Yes, I did. And uh, I had some incredible matches with him. Uh, how good was Rod Labor? You know, uh, it's difficult to compare Eras. Of course. Still in my book, it's arguably who's the best, you know, Feather, Labor. And those are the two. You know, and then you go Nadal for, you know, Clay. I mean, you know, and who knows where Djokovic is gonna end up. But but to me, Labor is still, he's still my my champion. Is that
0: good? He's your champion? Yeah, really?
1: He's, he's the guy. And what and
0: about Segura? What about Gonzalez? I mean...
1: Well, Gonzalez, okay? Uh, he was my idol growing up. Who's okay? your idol? Uh, I, this is what I will say about Gonzalez. If I had to pick one player for one match, and you bet everything, your whole life, your house, your wife, your kids, you had, put everything at stake, who's the horse you would pick against anybody? Gonzalez. That he was a real money player. He would always figure out how to win a match. He was the most fierce competitor you've ever seen. He will find a way how to win. He did that as a young young player, you know, uh, in the 20s and the 30s, and even into the 40s, age 40s. You know, I saw him play Jimmy Connors in 1972 in the finals (laughs) of the Southwest. Pancho is 46 years old. Finals at the LA Tennis Club. 7-5, 6-1, Seven five six one Gonzalez. Give him a tennis lesson. Come on. No, I saw it. 46 beat 26. Yeah. Jimmy was not even 26. He was 23, 24. Wow. I played a great match against Gonzalez at seven match points at Wimbledon. How he won it, I don't know. Now, that I want to ask,
0: until Isner played Mahout, you guys had had the longest match. That is correct. And you, you had six match points?
1: Seven. Oh, man. In the fifth set. That's and mean. many break points. I mean, he just, he just, I had two sets of love against him. And, uh, you know, and. That he, match was a six and a half hour match, man. It, it, not quite. It was five and a half hours. Sorry, five and a half hours. Yeah. But uh, he, he, you know, he, he, it was a difficult match for, for me to play because he's my idol. He's my coach. He coached us in Davis Cup. I practiced with him a thousand times. Not quite, but. Did you get several. tight? No. No, not at all. Not at all. I it wasn't. You ask a any, and you ask any of these guys if they got tight, they never.
0: They no, say they never f- got f- tight. First of all,
1: no, th- that's not true. I, I was tight is one thing, nervous is another thing. Okay, nervous, I was, and I was from the before I walked on the court, and and the thing and was did, was that match on center court Wimbledon. Center court at Wimbledon. Woo! And uh, and so when I walked on that center court, I mean here i am playing my idol my you know my coach my you know By,
0: for our listeners this is 1969 center court in the quarters no it was actually first round sorry first round yeah. uh, Pancho gonzalez versus charlie pasarell the longest match there ever was
1: up until that until time until
0: mahut played isner isner and that match was like 16 hours or something. Not three something. days. <laughs> yeah, three days of insanity.
1: But, uh, you know, and it's uh, it was a match that I really felt, uh, uh, I said, uh, I'm going to, you know, this is a guy I've, I've admired. So I had to put that out of my mind. I actually followed a lot of the advices that he had given me over the years. You were playing his playbook. I was playing his playbook. You know, he, he always said, he, I remember, in all my practice sessions when I was going to UCLA, I, I would ask him a lot of questions. You know, Pancho, how do you do that? Pancho, how do you do? How do you do this? And and he, I always remember. He says, when I had a, a tough match, he says I would. He says I would find a, a, a place where that I could be by myself, not disturbed. The locker room sometimes was not. But so I used to. He used to lock himself in the WC in the toilet. You know, he says so that he could really. Um, In his mind, play the match. You know, make start making decisions about how do I, if we toss the the coin, you know, am I going to serve first or return? Which side of the court do I want? You know, I mean, all this. First break point. How do I play the point? You know, and he would play. He would play. That's advice he had given me. So I did that. I did that with him. I said, okay, you know, he's now the enemy, you know, and everything. I know how he plays. I know how what he has to do. And he he never punched or never liked. To let a ball bounce, he'd serve and volley. He never liked to let, it. he got real tight to the net. So I said, I'm going to try to chip as low as I could. Uh, his serve, We had a magnificent serve. Just get it back low. And then lob the next one. And chip and lob the next to one. try to torture him. He's older than I am. I said, I'm going to him Make him tired. run back. And going I see if I can get this match into five sets, I'm going to win it. And not only, I won the first set 24-22. And so, 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 I said to myself- 24-22, right out of the no, box. Yeah, there were no tiebreakers, and the, he complained about it was getting dark, he couldn't see the ball. I changed my strategy. I, I, you know, I was, he was furious, like arguing with the referee uh, at that time. you got to suspend, I can't see the ball. And, uh, Torturing argument. the umpire. No, the umpire, the referee of the tournament. You oh. know, he called for the referee. You oh, know? he called for the he referee. He wanted to stop, Okay. And so I said, well, you know, if he's really having a tough time, maybe I'll take a chance and try to drive a couple of returns to serve. And if I can get a couple by him, he's going to be livid and furious. I knew him. You know, I knew his character. He was a hot-tempered guy. Oh, no kidding. And so I got lucky, and I hit a couple of really good drives, uh, you know, returns to serves, passed him. He went berserk. (laughs) 6-1 for me in the second set. And Wait, so you're up two sets to love? Two sets to love. Oh, man. The referee comes on the court and says, okay, it's a spend play. Okay, Mike Gibson, Captain Mike Gibson was the referee. Pancho, who was in the, in the where the royal box is, and, you know, which is the exit place, got so mad, he threw his racket from there all the way to the net, walked off steaming, arguing with Mike Gibson about, you should have called this man. You know, I don't know what he was saying. You know, I was on the other side. So now I'm left and he gets booed out of the stadium. I now I'm walking out of the court, and I so I tell one of the ball kids I said, "Would you here pick up Mr. Gonzalez's equipment?" And you know, and so I'm walking off the court with, we walk the, over the, ball, the ball, ball boy, With the ball boy. And you got to bow to the you got to bow, right? Well, only the on, on when you enter. The only court. when you enter, not yeah, on the so, way out. But anyway, that was it. And he, but he came back the next day and beat me. I think it was thirteen eleven in the fifth. You know, so. What can I tell you? You know, seven match points. I was unlucky in a couple of them. (laughs) I really was, you know. God, Charlie. And And by the way, were you like, you guys
0: were living the life. I mean, were you making a lot of money? Were you, or was it more of a harder
1: situation? Well, it it, it depends what you call making a lot of money, okay? Well, I mean, it depends what you call it. Yeah, in those days, it was fine. (laughs) And it was in the beginning, you know. But uh, the most I ever won uh, for winning a tennis tournament was $10,000 that's the most the most you the, ever won that's the most I ever won in a, in a single tournament so you know if you had a, a 40 50 60 thousand if you get to a hundred thousand dollars a year uh, you know you had a sensational year you know sensational year yeah sensational year that, that the, the price money was not that big um, I, I, but the to the truth is that, that was great that we were making yeah. enough money to to travel and uh, coach and uh, to, you know, we couldn't afford coaches, we couldn't afford, you know, ma- trainers, masseurs, you know, whatever, psychologists. We couldn't Psychologist. afford do
0: you, yeah. do you, when, you, when you guys are sitting around by yourself, you just, do you just laugh about it or you just can't believe it?
1: Or? We, we didn't know it existed. You didn't even know. Yeah, we didn't even Shit. know that was possible, you know, so. Uh, um, how did you finish? Like most players, you know, you get to a point where you're you just can't keep up. You, you get old. And uh, yeah, I mean, I try to play. How old were I, you 76 you? was my last good year. How know? old were you when you finished? Uh, I was in my 30s. Uh, well, let's see, uh, seventy. Uh, 78 was the, the 78. last year. That was the last year, so, you know.
0: And from there, it had to have been inside of 10 years that you created the Indian Wells Tournament. In
1: 1981. So shortly
0: yeah. after you finished, yeah,
1: I, I did. It was by pure accident. Uh,
0: with the and by the way, for our listeners, you know, we talk about they always talk about Larry Ellison and and Char- Charlie Charlie Pasarell created and was in charge of and owned Indian Wells up until not that long ago.
1: Yeah, it was pure accident. They they had been an ATP Tour tournament played in the desert. It was called the American Airlines uh, Tournament. And, was it uh, at the Hilton or something? No, it was at the Mission Hills Country Club. The Mission Hills. Okay. And, uh, and what happened was uh, in 1980, they had the 100-year flood in the desert. They couldn't even finish the tournament, okay? So the ATP lost, I remember because I was on the board, lost about $80,000 in that event, and you know, it's, they couldn't afford to lose $80,000, so Butch Buckles, who's my great friend, then was the head of the ATP at the time. He was the executive director. And he moved the tournament to Florida, which ultimately that event became- Miami. Yeah, the Miami tournament. Okay. And so he moved it. And so at that time, I I was retired. Uh, I was no longer playing. And and so I, I was working for a company called Landmark, Land Development Company doing the La Quinta Hotel. And so- I then went to the powers to be the Men's International Professional Tennis Council. You started making moves, and I applied for a sanction. And we used to have to apply every year. It was one-year sanctions, one-year sanctions, and so, so I applied to make a tournament to to bring a tournament back. Uh, luckily, there was an open week, and in February, late February, and so I, I was able to, and so we built a in ten weeks we built a stadium. Uh, it was. Uh, Tight call, but uh, we got it done. 10 weeks. In 10 weeks, yeah. We built it. Built a temporary stadium. Yep. And, uh, and so we did it. And we, um, we had the first tournament uh, at that time. Uh, you know, and that's the, in 1981. And that's, that's when I, I ran the tournament. And we then, uh, um, you know, I then proceeded to say, I got, I got to build a more permanent. in 1987. Uh, I, I, well, prior to that, I bought a piece of property. The only way I could finance a tennis stadium at those days was to build a hotel. And so I, I built what was then called the Grand Champions Hotel. It's now the Hyatt Regency. And in that property, we built the stadium, a 10,000-seat permanent seat stadium. And we had the tournament there through 1999. And by 1995, I realized we had a, we didn't have enough room for expansion, we didn't have enough parking, we didn't have enough seats, we didn't have enough bathrooms, we didn't have enough concessionary, enough courts, enough of everything. And so I started to look around for a way to expand it, and that's when I acquired with IMG as my partner, Mark McCormack as my partner, uh, we acquired uh, the uh, 188 acres. In Indian Wells, where the existing Indian Wells Tennis Garden is, the Tennis Garden, the Tennis Garden. Yes, people somehow think that Larry Ellison built that. He did not. That was you guys built that. I have to. he, he, he has taken it. Another one. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, he has invested and and done a a magnificent. We found a great owner. He must have. He and he and he must have given you a billion dollars. I wish he would (laughs) have.
0: (laughs) <laughs> not quite. I mean, you must have helicoptered <laughs> in here, Charlie, after you sold out.
1: If journey. I would have received a billion dollars, uh, no, not quite. <laughs> but uh, we built uh, what I think is still today the second largest tennis stadium in the world, only after New York, after the Arthur Ashe Stadium in New York. And uh, we had a, a lot of room for expansion. Everybody thought it was too big, too much, too much of everything, and everybody said, like, wait and see, wait and see. Never want to tell myself 10 years from now I wish we would have had more room I wish we would have built a bigger and um, I think I proved I proved myself right I Tell you what man
0: hindsight's always 2020 and now that we can look back I mean you clearly created a masterpiece I mean that is as good as it gets in the world um, if you have not been that's as good as it gets that is an awesome
1: awesome tournament Well and and we were very fortunate that uh, in trying times uh that we found the right owner uh you know in larry ellison and uh, i i'm so so pleased that uh, he's now the owner because he loves tennis everything he does has got to be the best you know not second best the best and uh and he's got He's the unlimited resources. He's got unlimited resources.
0: He can do whatever he wants.
1: So he's he's done a just a magnificent job, and I'm very proud of it. It's still my baby, though. So what do you do? You <laughs> roll
0: around like you you roll around in like a gold golf cart when you're there. Like do you? Like no, really? not at
1: all. I buy my tickets like everybody else. And uh, come and, on. No, it's it's that's true. It's it's the way I did it. Even when I owned the tournament, I always. You know, it's amazing when you have a tennis tournament. You know how many good friends you you have, and people say, "Can I get a ticket? Can I get a ticket?" And everything. Else. I said, "Well, I buy my tickets. I got tickets to sell." <laughs> so, so anyway. you got tickets to
0: sell? We got to talk next year, then maybe. Maybe we'll have to. Maybe we'll have to. Try no, to...
1: I, I. That was way back
0: then. Oh, now,
1: now <laughs> I don't have tickets to sell. All right, all right, okay. all
0: right. We're always looking for tickets. Move into our fourth set. The, we call this the ten-wall scramble. Um, this is not a deep dive. It's, I say something, and you say what comes into your mind. Okay. Okay. Favorite tournament: Wimbledon. Favorite city:
1: New York. Arthur Ashe. Oh, Arthur was uh, not only my best friend, uh, confidant. Uh, I still think so much about him. Uh, I, I kind of, in a way, when I have. Sometimes I have difficult things, decisions to make and everything. I I kind of reflect on Arthur and said, you know, how we would have handled this, because he handled some very difficult ones. Did you uh,
0: have a front row seat for some of the racism that he was, uh,
1: you know, victimized by? Yes. Although Arthur never really tried to pass on any of his burdens to his friends. And that kind of, in a way, annoyed me because I, sometimes I wanted to, Arthur, let me know what, you know. Yeah, what, and, go shake, oh, somebody's, I'm okay. I'm go okay. shake so, somebody's head. Yeah, and, uh, and so he was just an incredible person. You know, I mean, every day I found out something new, not every day, but every so often I find something new I never knew about Arthur. And that makes him into a, just a, I mean, he truly was a hero, a hero in, Not just in tennis, but just overall. You know, he changed a lot of people's lives. He and Billie Jean are the greatest heroes in the sport of tennis. Pancho Gonzalez. Toughest competitor I I have known. Pancho Segura. Greatest mind in the sport of tennis. Ken Rosewall. Uh, Incredible athlete, played late into his uh, age. uh, Just a fierce competitor. Rod Laver. Still my, the best of all times for me. Jan Tyriak. Smart, entrepreneurial, wealthiest man in the sport. Nicola Pietrangeli. An artist, he was a magnificent uh, clay court player, had incredible game. Best woman of your generation. Difficult to answer, but I would say Margaret Court. Best competitor, uh, Billie Jean King. Um, did you know Althea Gibson? I did, yes. Uh, he was also very good, but I put Margaret ab- above Althea. Okay. Uh, favorite player now? I love, it's hard to pick between Rafa and, Fe- and Roger. Favorite player when you were a child, growing up? Pancho Gonzalez, Jack Kramer, those two. Uh, appearance fees? Never believed in them. Didn't, didn't ever pay an appearance fee to play the tournament at, at uh, in La Quinta and at Indian Wells. Are appearance fees a problem? I think if I was a, 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 not one of the top players, yes. I think, I think I would be fighting against appearance fees in tournaments. From what I understand, they're
0: out of control. Um, the numbers I hear are incredible. I see players getting paid six figures, losing first round, the seats are empty, the stands are not, and, and it just seems like a, a general theme that some of these tournaments are having some trouble.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think if you're gonna spend that kind of money, uh, I think you should spend it with all the players. Basically increase the prize money, uh, in, give them better hospitality. If, if, you know, m- Most tournaments are doing that pretty well anyway giving them maybe a travel allowance. That's another another thing. But give it to every one of them the same. Uh, I think uh, every, every tournament is a brand new race. And all players, sure, you have the seated players and so forth. You have the stars. They're the ones that sell you the tickets. I understand all of that. But if they're, you know, they have to prove themselves every single week. They don't get any free weeks. And to me, Paying those appearance fees is kind of giving them a little bit of a pass. And
0: how does it work? The agent says, "Listen, man, you want you want Francis Tiafo, it's a hundred grand. That's it, and you got to you got to pay him."
1: I I'd say you got to pay to play. If if he was playing in my tournament, I'd say thank you very much. You know, we we'll welcome Francis to come and play the tournament. We'll treat him very well. We'll treat him like every other player, and he's welcome to come. And if you play want this. Roger
0: Federer, it's two million dollars. Well, you, you
1: know, it, is that a fact? I mean, is that a fact? Uh, I don't know. That's how I, it works. I don't. I didn't, you don't. Know. I don't. I don't know whether that number is is accurate. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, but, but I mean, but you it's know, it's a seven figure they, number. I mean,
0: is that is that to me, that bankrupt
1: a tournament? well it just depends you know if you if you're playing tournaments uh, say in the Middle East that the economics don't make any sense you know they they run it because they just want to have a show and they'll pay a lot of money you know it doesn't they don't pay out they don't run it like a business fine you know I mean they got the money to pay Roger or Novak or Rafa you know exorbitant amounts you got of money. the money you got the money you got the money you know you just want to have a show and it, it it doesn't matter it's not an economic tournament you know they don't Worry about sponsorships and selling tickets or any of that, you know, all that stuff, so.
0: Let's move into our fifth set. This is uh, what we call king of the court. If you were the king of tennis, you could make a change, what would it be?
1: Well, I I think Davis Cup is the one thing that troubles me the most. You know, I think we need to come up, and they're working on it, we need to come up with a better format than we've had over the past few years. The promotion of a Davis Cup has really gone down in comparison to what has happened in the, with the Grand Slams and even with the Master Series tournament and many other tournaments, 500s and even 1,000. You know, it's not, not even close. So, Davis Cup needs to find the right format. But outside of that, outside of Davis Cup, which is a big topic, uh, I would like to see the Hawkeye system being implemented in the Clay Court tournaments. You want Hawkeye on the Clay? Yeah. I think it's... Too much aggravate, too, uh, too much... Well, I just think Hawkeye is it's more, it's, it's more accurate than a ball mark. Loose gravel or sand and in, in, in clay, and if the ball hits, it'll blow yeah. in the sand. You know, so it's hard to determine the precise point where that ball hit. I do think that one of the changes that should be made is that all the tournaments that precede uh, the U.S. Open, the, whatever the hard court season is, you know, should be on the same surface. So we do have some clay court tournaments, uh, particularly in Europe, uh, that are played before the the U.S. Open. And I think some of those tournaments are wanting to make uh, surface changes. I think that's an important key because you want to get the players to be prepared to play. You talk about Umag and... and That is correct. Umag
0: and Borstad. Yes. So you don't think that they should go back to clay? You think those tournaments should be hardcore tournaments?
1: I I think... You know, the the majors have such a great impact on the sport. You know, before Wimbledon, you want to play on grass. Before uh, U.S. Open, you want to play on hardcourts, Before the French, you want to play on clay. So you think that the days of diving back onto the clay should be shut down? Well, I, I think you could have maybe one or two. We, like the tournament in Hamburg has been a traditional tournament. It's been a, you know, a big event uh, with a lot of tradition. That's okay. But I think there are some other... Um, smaller tournaments like UMAC you mentioned UMag and everything that that come a little bit later closer to the US Open I think you need to start looking at those events as a you know if if those events want to do that I, I you know I think it's, yeah. again and so so it's a it's really um that's that's one of the things that that I would like to like to see you know it's a I think for the players' benefit, that, that's a good move. For the tournament's benefit, that was also a good move. So it's something that both players and tournaments should should uh, support.
0: You know, first of all, thank you very much for joining us. You know, to have a Hall of Famer and someone who created Indian Wells, so we go every year, and what you did is just incredible. And typically we say you are released, but... Uh, you know, I wouldn't say that to you. <laughs> Thanks for having us.
1: Thank you. And did I win the five-set match? There's no winners here, man. I think we're all winners. <laughs> <laughs> Just, uh, it's been a pleasure, and, uh, and thank you for, for uh, allowing me to at least give my thoughts.
0: Huge thank you to Charlie Passerell. Big thank you to the Sparrow Cafe at the Malibu Racquet Club. It is by far and away the best-kept secret in Southern California. I've had everything on the menu. They are open for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It is all awesome, and it is open to the public. It's a great hideout. See it at SparrowCafeMalibu.com. And when you go, tell them that I sent you. I'd like to thank Sergio Tacchini, the official apparel sponsor of Under Review. See what they're doing at SergioTacchini.com. Thank you to our new patron, Malcolm McDonald, Your racket magazine featuring my article about the fabled Huggy Bear is on the way. If you've been thinking about becoming a patron of the show, now is the time. We just posted some new members-only premium content. Head on over to patreon.com slash underreviewtennis to read all about it. We really appreciate it. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. That is the name of the game. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At UR with CS is our Twitter handle. Tennis is our Instagram and Facebook. To catch some clips from some of our interviews, check out our YouTube page. Scott Tuft and Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. And Jason Binnick did our mix. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro and you are released.